0: got it. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Bible class. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning with our prayer, we praise you and we lift you high and glorified. Father, as we enter into this period of Bible study, please be with all of us who teach this morning in our classes that we may faithfully present and instruct in your word. We pray for our open and Sincere hearts, that we may receive your instruction. Bless us, Father, and give us wisdom, and may we ever learn more from your word day by day. Be with us now, we ask, in Jesus name. Amen. John chapter seven is where we are. John chapter seven, we began this uh, chapter last week with some introductory thoughts. And got down uh, through verse 13. So we'll pick up today with verse 14, but just by way of uh, review and memory, remember that uh, in verses 12 and 13, that the Lord is now in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. lot going on. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. People from all over are there. High anticipation, not only of the activities connected with the feast, but the anticipation of Jesus being there. And the people loved Jesus. The leaders hated him. And everybody, it seemed, uh, was talking about Jesus. There were conversations about Jesus, but... Whenever the Pharisees or the rulers appeared, all conversation stopped. It seems that there was a, just sort of a, uh, a dreadful air of uh, impending doom. Something was going to happen. Everybody, it seems, felt it. And so, with uh, Jesus now gone to Jerusalem six months away from the crucifixion. lot's going to happen in these six months, beginning here with uh, chapter 7 of John. So with Jesus now in Jerusalem, not uh, with a triumphant uh, entry like his brothers had suggested, but a secret one among the people. And so the scene is is now set for Jesus' Uh, dialogue with the people themselves. We read the entire chapter last week, so we'll not do that again, but we will just read uh, verse by verse as we come to them. We'll look, first of all, I'm hoping this morning to get through verse 36, because we've got one more Sunday to wrap this uh, chapter up. So I really need to get through verse 36 uh, today. But the first section in this section of verses is verses 14 through 24. And during this time, uh, we're going to see uh, what might be uh, uh, Jesus' appearance in the temple. After he arrives, he goes into the temple. So let's look at verses 14 through. And 15, now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Interesting, Jesus was bold. And his boldness in going to the temple, openly teaching Even with a loud voice, later on it will be referred to as him crying out in the temple, simply meaning that it wasn't a soft, timid voice, but Jesus spoke with authority and with force and with a loud voice. And this just totally frustrated uh, the leaders. And people were beginning to believe in him because of his instructions. It says that he taught in the temple, and probably, uh, most likely, the kind of teaching that Jesus did was what we would call expository. In school, they taught us that basically there are three kinds of lesson or sermon. Uh, You have the topical sermon or, or lesson where you pick whatever topic, and then you find scripture to support that. And the next is textual, and that's where you would find a scripture itself, and that be the basis then for spring into other scriptures that uh, parallel that. Then there is expository, and that's where you just select a book or a chapter or a paragraph and camp there and not leave it. Maybe occasionally to another. Scripture or two, but for the most part, just staying right in the text, reading everything before and in the middle and afterwards. Jesus had the scrolls of the Old Covenant that were in every synagogue and certainly in the temple. This was before chapter and verse designation, it was just pure text. And so, Jesus would take the law of God, the law of Moses, the scriptures, the prophets. And he would just expound on them. This is what Jesus was doing in the temple. And his boldness just uh, it, it just really frustrated the leaders. Uh, and they, the leaders here uh, represent an arrogance that's just really hard to believe but but yet it's there we see the same kind of arrogance today among many who profess to preach and teach god's word but this arrogance is seen in what they said and in putting it uh, into how we would maybe say it today they said to the people the leader said to the people how could he know anything if he did not learn it from us. And so they asked the crowd this rhetorical question in an effort to discredit Jesus' authority. But this was their arrogance. If it didn't come from us, it ain't true. Forget it. Don't believe it. And what Jesus was speaking did uh, starkly contrast with what the leaders taught, or rather how they taught it. Then verse 16. Notice what he says. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but he who sent me. So Jesus here very clearly claims that his own words were in fact the words of God. And this claim Again, infuriated the leaders. They couldn't stand it. Verse 17. Jesus continues his dialogue. He says, If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So, Again, maybe in the way we would phrase it uh, today, what Jesus is saying here is if you really want to know uh, or if you really want to do God's will, let him practice what I teach and see if it contradicts any of God's word. Try it. The source of knowledge of God's will today, of course, is the Bible. It is the Word of God. We have it in written form through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we need something as we have the Word of God before us. We need something uh, in order to understand it and to obey it. We need reason. We need a certain level of intelligence and experience. We certainly need obedience and love. And these are among the instruments uh, needed to be able to understand what the Word of God is saying. But even more important than those aspects, like uh, reason, intelligence, experience, obedience, and love, is the human will to desire to know God's will. The desire. And I believe this is getting to the center of why he was rejected. Uh, The desire to really know with an open mind and an open heart, God's will. So this desire is really what we are looking for. Uh, As we go out and we uh, exercise in evangelism, we're looking for seekers. Seekers. And really, we'll only have success to the extent that we find those really seeking God's will. They're really wanting to know God's will, truly, sincerely. And it's the seekers that God is wanting, and it's the seekers that will. Hear the word of God, understand the word of God, and obey the word of God. And here we know that the leaders certainly did not fall in this category. Notice verse 18. Jesus continues, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness or false teaching is in him. Uh we see here the, the nature of two classes of teachers, and the contrast is between Jesus as a teacher and the Pharisees as a teacher. And it was evident who seek the glory uh, from Jesus' ministry and who received the glory and honor when the Jewish leaders taught and practiced their religion. It was evident. It was a difference. Both teaching from the sacred word of God, the old covenant, but how they taught it and how they practiced was night and day in difference. Verse 19, Jesus continues addressing the people. Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Of course, none of the Pharisees, no one, in fact, kept the law strictly. They just didn't. So why plot to kill Jesus for Sabbath breaking if this is the case? Along with this, I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, beginning with verse 1. Jesus here is speaking with reference to the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. And notice what Jesus says in this text. Matthew 23, beginning with verse 1 through verse 7. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works for they say and do not. For they lay or they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues. Greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. And so this is in essence what Jesus is referring to here. When he says, Moses gave you the law, but none of you keep the law. So why are you trying, in your hypocrisy, to kill me for what you would say, breaking the Sabbath? And we go on to verse 20. The people now have a chance to speak. And the people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. I think to understand this, again, we've already made mention of this before. Last week when we were in the first uh, study, you have two classes of people. Well, actually three, but two main classes. Pilgrims who were not from Jerusalem, but from in the country, who have come to Jerusalem for the feast. And then the other class are the dwellers in Jerusalem, the citizens of Jerusalem itself. Now, those living in Jerusalem were well aware of the leader's plot to kill Jesus. They knew it's been going on for a year and a half. So it was known, but not so much so with the people not living in Jerusalem. So within all possibility, these are the ones that uh, are speaking now when they say, what are you talking about? Uh, They are saying, in effect, you're crazy. How can you say that our leaders... Are trying to kill you. And so with that perspective. Maybe we can understand it a little bit better. But then in verse 21. Jesus answered and said to them. I did one work. And you all marvel. I think uh, probably. And you have probably a footnote. Or cross reference to this effect. That the reference here is to the healing of the men of Bethesda, 18 months uh, before. And this was made, this miracle was made for the sake of contrasting that uh, one lone act of love and mercy performed on the Sabbath with the continual and constant violation of the Sabbath by the Pharisees by circumcision, which they do on the Sabbath. And so here Jesus is about to uh, exercise in uh, a point of debate. a contrast in his teaching and the Pharisees. He's going to compare what he did on the Sabbath by healing a man that was in dire need of healing and being condemned for it. And then on the other hand, If a child's uh, eighth day of living occurs on the Sabbath, they allow it. They go ahead. Let's go ahead and read verses 22 through 23. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be uh, broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so these verses establish the fact that circumcision came before the law of Moses. Uh, the Sabbath having been given through Moses and circumcision having come before Uh, before Moses, you go all the way back to uh, Genesis 17, and there you will see how that God uh, confirmed the covenant with Abraham, the sign of the covenant being circumcision, that all male children on the eighth day be circumcised. And so that's what we're talking about here. So if the eighth day of circumcision fell on the Sabbath, the Pharisees allowed it to happen. And so this demonstrates the great truth that works of necessity and mercy were never intended to be forbidden by God's law concerning the Sabbath. In other words, the law that calls for men to rest on the Sabbath is subordinate to the law of love and mercy which is what Jesus was exercising in his healing and other things that he did on the sabbath if he did it on the sabbath it should not be condemned because it was always out of love and mercy verse 24 Then some of them from Jerusalem. Now it's the citizens' time to start talking. Some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? They knew the plot. But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is. He is from. So, here we see that uh, they had made a false judgment. In verse 24, he says, Do not judge uh, according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So they had made a false judgment here. Based solely on the fact that Jesus had apparently broken the Sabbath. So their judgment that Jesus was worthy of death as a Sabbath breaker was an evil judgment. Jesus is saying, in other words, judge it for what it really is. And that is God's will being done on the Sabbath. And so we have this initial uh, dialogue with the people, stemming from Jesus standing in the temple, uh, teaching and preaching. First, maybe pilgrims from outside the city uh, speaking up, and then the citizens from Jerusalem itself speaking up. And yet, no one took him. No one laid hands on him. The opposing phrase there in 24, judge, righteous judgment, what exactly does that mean? You hear so many people today saying you're not allowed to judge. But right here he's saying judge, but judge with righteous judgment. Yeah. I think he's looking at... Uh, at actual deeds. You know, sometimes we say uh, we're not to to judge according to appearance, outward appearance, jumping to conclusions, but we can be fruit pickers. We can uh, observe what is true fruit and what is not true fruit. So judgment, all, all of this, you know, the Pharisees were trying to build up any case that they could put together uh, to condemn Jesus, to discredit him. And so they see him doing this on the Sabbath day. And so it's something that Jesus did on the Sabbath. Therefore, he's broken the Sabbath. Uh, Forget the fact that it was an act of love and mercy, but he did it on the Sabbath. So they jump on this, trying to convince the people that he is guilty of Sabbath breaking, and that is so important that he needs to be put to death. So I don't know what what's your thoughts on that, righteous judgment. Anyone? Anyone else like to jump in? Exactly. And that's always a good point to bring out when we're studying with people. Uh, As many of you probably do as well, but when Kay and I are uh, engaged in evangelism and studying with people, if they're willing, we always ask them to, to read the scriptures that we are going over. And when they finish, we... Come back with something like, now what did God say here? What is it that the Lord is saying here? Not me, but, and that's what you're saying, Nathan, it's the Scriptures. Let the Scriptures do the teaching. Good points. Yeah, that's a good example of what we're looking at here. Jesus is being a a victim of false accusation, of unrighteous judgment, in order to get him out of the way and out of their hair. We come then next to the the next section, verses 25 through 36. And uh, let's see if we can get through this. But beginning with uh, verses 25 uh, through 27, let's notice what it said. But some of them from Jerusalem said, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly. They say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know when, where this man is from. And when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. I got ahead of myself a while ago and already read that. Let's look at it now. Uh, during this period of time, we are going to see uh, a feeble attempt to arrest Jesus that, that fails. Verses 25 through 27 that we just read, they were not actually forbidding Jesus' teaching Uh, They could just not stand up to Jesus in any debate with him. And so, I tell you, in my opinion, what I believe is that uh, the rulers did indeed know that this was the Christ. I really do. Uh, Jesus uh, did so many things miracles obviously from God nothing he did was out of malice or deceit or personal gain all of it was out of love and mercy he did no wrong his teaching was undisputed it was coming from the scripture he didn't violate scripture so yeah The leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they studied the Word of God. Jesus just said in what we uh, read a while ago from Matthew that uh, they teach, they sit in Moses' seat, they teach the Word of God, and you should do it, but not as they practice it, because they don't practice it. So, yeah, I, I think that they really did know that this was the Christ, but Satan was a hold of their minds and their thinkings, and uh, that wasn't motive enough to accept him. But Larry, um, it's in 27, it said that uh, no one knows where Christ comes from, but God's Word had uh, already been told where he was coming from. Right. So obviously... Right. Absolutely. Uh, Again, pointing to the fact that uh, we've got to stick to Scripture. But again, let's remember that back then, hardly anyone had their own personal copy of the Scriptures. They relied on the synagogue and the temple to hear the teaching from the scrolls, from the Word of God. Filtered through the scribes and Pharisees. So, yeah, they knew the teaching. Uh, Again, let's go back to uh, Matthew chapter 21, just for a second. Matthew 21. And let's look at verses 33 through 39 in reference to what we're looking at now. Matthew 21, beginning uh, with verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went to a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. You see a parallel here? Vine dressers knew who the son was, they didn't respect him like the master thought they would or should have, they killed him. Yeah, they knew who Jesus was. This has to be the Christ. They knew that he was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. They knew that. They they had to have known that. But he was so much different from them. Theirs was about power and position. And a claim by men. And so they set out methodically and deliberately to kill him. Verses 28 through 29. Let's look at those scriptures. If we go back to John chapter 7. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying you both know me and you know where I am from and I have not come of myself but he who sent me is true whom you do not know but I know him for I am from him and he sent me. Uh, this is sort of a maybe a play on words in today's language, I think uh, what Jesus is saying would be something like this: So you think you know me? You think it uh, you know where I am from. You do not even know what you think you know. I am from God. I know this because I know Him, and you do not know this because you do not know him. And so the leaders uh, did not know God. They did not know him experientiously. Factually, they, of course, knew God. But they did not know him to the extent that their heart was desirous of knowing his will and doing his will. And so this was the basis of their failure to accept him. They did not know God. Verses 30 through 32. Then they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which This man does. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Here in verse 31. Well, in verse 30 it says that they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him. You know, it could very well be that... uh, in this particular verse, the reference is to the people themselves. So many believed in him; they knew that he was the Christ. Can anyone do more signs than he's already done? But verse thirty says they sought to take him, maybe to make him king. You know, their thoughts of the kingdom was still that when Messiah would come, it would be an earthly kingdom that he would be restoring. But no one laid a hand on him because Jesus' hour in God's providence had not yet come. So down here in verse 32, it is said that the Pharisees and the, the, uh, the Pharisees heard what the crowd were saying, and they sought to arrest him. They sent officers to take him. There's a great tragedy here, I think, that we need to realize. And the tragedy is that I think at this point, the vast majority of the people would gladly have held Jesus as the Messiah. But out of deference to their leaders, they hesitated. This has to be the Messiah, the people, most of the people believe. Yet no one laid a hand on him to make it so. Why? They did have respect for their leaders. How could our leaders be out to kill him? How could our leaders be wrong? And the leaders are against him. So no one took him. And this is, again, God's providence. It would be six more months before his time has come to manifest himself. And so we see the great tragedy and the great sin of the Pharisees here because not only did they reject the Lord as Christ themselves, but because of them, the nation as a whole rejected Him. And we lay this at the feet of the leaders. No way around it. They're to blame. In verses 33 through 34. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little longer than I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So knowing that the end is near again, six months away, Jesus looks ahead and declares that he will soon return to where he came from. He came from God, and to God he will return. So this was said in response to the efforts of the Jews to find and seize him. Soon he would be in a place that they would not be able to follow. And this is because, as disbelievers... They would not be able to come to the right hand of God. Then finally, verses 35 and 36. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall find him? Does he intend to go to the Diaspora uh, dispersion? (laughs) I messed that up. Among Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. So now they were really confused. They think that Jesus is really afraid of being captured and put in prison, and that perhaps he's going to leave them and go into the diaspora, the dispersion, the Jews living not in Palestine, but throughout the Roman Empire. In various cities. So they're thinking maybe what he says is that that he's leaving here and he's going to be preaching to the ones that's out there among the Greeks. And so thus we see the uh, narrative developing. Jesus is in Jerusalem now, it's an upward march to Calvary. Much to happen, and it begins here with this Feast of Tabernacles. His teaching in the temple, his dialogue with the people, the pilgrims, the citizens of Jerusalem, and the leaders themselves. And so the Lord willing, next week we will close chapter 7. Thank you for your attention, and I apologize for rushing through a little bit. But I hope it's been beneficial.